Nurture Podcast, show number one, Understanding and Helping Children with ADHD, The No-Go Model with Dr. Karen Varblow. Welcome to Nurture, an early childhood development podcast, bringing you multiple perspectives on the development of young children and their families, best practices for early childhood professionals, and where parents and all kinds of families are welcome. I am Mark Gardner, host of the show. I'm a clinical social worker, and my specialty is early childhood mental health. I work as a psychotherapist with young children and their families, and as a mental health consultant to a number of child care and preschool programs in the Washington, D.C. area. On today's show, I will be talking to Dr. Karen Varblow, a pediatrician who specializes in treating ADHD in children. We will be discussing a very common question when it comes to children with attentional challenges. As Dr. Varblow puts it, why do they do that? This will include reviewing her no-go functional model of the ADHD brain, which, in a very clear and empowering way, helps us answer this question. And to clarify, that's no, K-N-O-W, as in the what-we-know sense, not the no-I-won't-do-that meaning of no. I've had the opportunity to collaborate with Dr. Varblo in treating children with ADHD, as well as hear her talk about this model, so I'm especially excited to get the opportunity to speak with her for you and the listening audience. If you'd like to learn more about Dr. Varblow and her services, please go to her website, www.drkarenmd.com. Again, that's Karen with an I, so that's www.drkarenmd.com. If you'd like more information about the topics in this show, please go to nurturepodcast.com backslash episode one. Also at this link, you'll find a document with illustrations of the no-go model, which may be helpful as you listen along to the show. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome to the Nurture Podcast, Dr. Varblow. Thank you. It's good to be here. So you currently treat children with ADHD, and you are a pediatrician. How did you get so interested in specializing in ADHD? Great question. I um, was diagnosed with ADHD myself when I was in medical school. I also uh, had careers prior to medicine uh, that lend themselves to this field. I started off my career in education, and then I was a social worker for a while. Then I went into medicine and was a general pediatrician for about 10 years. During the time that I was a general pediatrician, I found that I really loved working with the families and children affected by ADHD. At some point, I read a study that made it very clear that the outcomes of children treated by clinicians who are experts in ADHD are superior to the outcomes of children treated by their general community practitioner. And at that point, I decided that I could no longer, in good conscience, treat ADHD unless I was going to become a specialist. And so that's what I did. Dr. Varlow, tell us a little bit about what ADHD is. ADHD is a neurodevelopmental disorder which starts in childhood and negatively impacts a person's performance throughout their lifespan. 
And so talk a little bit more about the behaviors, the thinking challenges, and the parent challenges that uh, occur with a child with ADHD and talk a little bit about that. And especially keeping in mind that uh, this audience is for early childhood um, uh, professionals and parents with younger children. So um, three and four-year-olds, five-year-olds, six-year-olds, what are they, what's that going to look like for them? There's a great expression that I love, which says that you've seen one kid with ADHD, you've seen one kid with ADHD. <laughs> the interesting thing about this disorder is that it can manifest in vastly, vastly different ways. So I could list symptoms for you. Um, and there are, there's any number of checklists available out there that can help people narrow down whether or not their child meets diagnostic criteria. But what I like to think about when I think about ADHD is a little different from sort of whether or not they meet the diagnostic criteria. As you said, I have ADHD, or as I said earlier, I have ADHD, and I've spent a lot of time with many people who have ADHD. And I found that reading through the diagnostic criteria didn't give me any information about why they do what they do. I can check off lists of things that they do, but in order to really understand what is ADHD, I needed to understand why do they do that? Why do they do the things that they do? And that's how I developed my no-go model. Before we get to that, I do do want um, for those that, uh, you know, who who may be wondering for their child. Can you, I know it's difficult because each child is different, but give some general, just general senses of some things that pa- parents will come in and talk about or that you've experienced. Sure. So children who present with the inattentive type of ADHD are the children who may look like their brains are in la-la land a lot of the time. They may not respond right away when you call their name because they may not really hear you very clearly when they're engaged in something that they're interested in. They may hear something. On the other hand, they may hear perfectly well what you said and then not be able to act on it. For example, if it's a series of directions for them to follow, they may get through the first step, but not be able to proceed on to further steps in in multi-step directions, for example, despite the fact that they heard perfectly well what those directions were. For the hyperactive impulsive presentation of ADHD, these are the kids who are um, acting as, as if they were driven by a motor, is the expression. They just go, 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 go. These are your little energizer bunnies. And they are constantly moving, constantly squirming, constantly fidgeting. They are the kids who are um, more likely than their peers to act before thinking. These are the kids who may consistently have trouble remembering to stop and look for traffic before they run out into the street, chasing after a ball that rolled into the street, for example. These are the kids who may consistently um, climb on the furniture, despite the fact that they've been told several times not to climb up the bookshelves, things like that. Um, And then combined type 
has elements of both. I get into um, preschool settings pretty often, and I guess I, I keep thinking of um, when children are sitting in circle time. And it's and again, your point is very well taken that ADHD can look different for each child. But I was imagining even just as we think of those two different types, and perhaps the inattentive type you'll see is maybe sitting there very quietly, uh, but they're looking off in a different way or thinking about something else. They sometimes have sort of a glazed expression on their faces. Their faces may be pointing in the direction of the teacher, but the there's a look that they have that indicates that they're just really not processing much or any of what the teacher is actually saying. Right. And then the combined or the um, hyperactive impulsive presentation child may not be sitting in circle time at all, <laughs> may have gotten up from circle time and be running laps around the classroom or um, any number of um, ways that indicate that sitting still is not going to be part of this kid's day. Right. And I think that also, or they could be the child that is um, sitting there and squirming and wants to answer each question or to do every activity that the teacher brings up. Right. Um, Right. That impulsivity and the difficulty with waiting and being patient, waiting your turn. These are the kids who can be wonderfully eager and enthusiastic but it can be to the detriment of the other kids in the class. And I guess I was thinking too, is that, um, and I, I just wanted you to talk a little bit about this, that there is not a connection between, or I'm pretty sure, but you can tell us that between having ADHD and intelligence, because I've known plenty of children who may not be able to sit still during circle time um, and maybe you know up and moving or moving around the class, but they're listening, and, and sometimes they're the first to have the answer to the question. So I just can you say a little bit about that, about whether there's a connection or not between sure, intelligence sure. and ADHD? Absolutely. There are studies that have shown that ADHD can be present in children of any level of intelligence. So it can be present certainly in kids in the normal range of sort of IQ, in the extremely gifted range and in the cognitively impaired range. So it it can be present regardless and independent of a child's IQ. Um, What's interesting is that, as you um, sort of alluded to, many children who are of higher intelligence can learn just fine, especially in early years, in an educational setting, without ever appearing to listen to what's being said, and that's called incidental learning. The children may be busy doing something else with their hands or with their bodies, um, and apparently even with their brains, but they're somehow able to sort of incidentally absorb enough of the information to succeed quite nicely in school. And I think you're getting into some of the, um, the different ways that the ADHD brain can work or the special ways, however we'd want to put that, that in terms of taking in information. And again, I think that that's enormously variable. Um, and people with or without ADHD, certainly the, the, the ways in which people process information are numerous and, um, and variable. So again, in terms of some people process 
visually, some people process auditorily, some people process more um, sort of physically with, if they're moving, things like that. I don't think there's any common pattern to children with ADHD that makes them different in that regard from children without ADHD. But I will say that sometimes children with ADHD may not look like they are learning the same way that their peers are learning, but they may still be gathering information and absorbing and learning. Um, so it's not that it's different in terms of it's always visual and children without ADHD are always mm. auditory learners, something mm. like that, but just that it can be deceiving. Mm. Okay. That's a great point. And I think for when we're thinking about children and people in general, that there are all different ways of learning, behaving, interacting, feeling, thinking. And we have to keep that in mind and that a lot of these are on spectrums uh, from, you know, as we look at a particular dimension of functioning and that that we're all different. Yeah. And that children with ADHD are all different too. And I think the the thing that's important to realize is that And this is a little tricky because by definition, the ADHD has to be impairing for the person to qualify as having ADHD. However, that doesn't mean that there are not strengths that come from also from that also come from having the ADHD. So while it is impairing in certain aspects of life, it can also be of great benefit in other aspects of life. The impairment doesn't mean that it's universally bad, but the impairment does mean that in enough ways, more than one setting, it is obstacle enough to peak performance that it's a problem. That's required to be part of the, to be, um, to meet the diagnostic criteria. So you mentioned that in some ways having an ADHD brain could be helpful. Um, tell, tell me a little bit more about that. Sure. I think that there are certain qualities that come with having ADHD that, like I said, in some circumstances can be very helpful. There is um, easy distractibility, for example. Somebody who is very distractible may be the first one to notice that something has gone wrong when other people didn't notice. Maybe they noticed some little thing that distracted them from their day-to-day routine, and that was a clue to something. For example, um, I heard a story about um, a man who was involved in a plane crash, but it was a crash onto water, and there were many, many survivors but everybody was reacting chaotically and there was no system to that had yet been established to get them off the plane and to safety. And he was so distracted. This gentleman with ADHD was so distracted by the chaos and the, and the variety of responses that the people around him were having that he was able to recognize that no plan had been established to create order. So he did that. He created the order and got everybody safely off the plane. Nobody else on the plane was distracted by the chaos. They were only focused on their own task at hand, getting themselves off the plane. Mm. So it's a different way of looking at things that in some circumstances can be very, very helpful, but can also be um, very disruptive. 
Depending on the circumstances. And depending on the circumstances on the and how the person uses the way that their brain works, how they leverage their strengths. So picking up on that, tell, tell us a little bit more about how you came up with and what the no-go model is of the ADHD brain. Okay. Well, first thing, I think it's important to spell the no-go, no-go model for, okay. uh, for your listeners. The word no is K-N-O-W and then go. So it's not N-O slash go. It's K-N-O-W slash go. And, and just so um, um, just so our listeners will know, uh, Dr. Varblow has agreed to put up a slide of the uh, no-go model, and we'll have that on the website. And again, uh, that'll be at nurturepodcast.com backslash episode two. So check that out there. So again, when I was thinking about ADHD and the way these brains work and what kinds of characteristics these children tend to have and how variable they are, I really wanted to understand what the common thread was between the children who have the inattentive presentation of ADHD and the children who have the hyperactive impulsive presentation of ADHD and the children who have the combined presentation and the children with very, very high IQ and the children with cognitive impairments and the children in the middle of the pack and all of these different variables there was still something in common that was sort of almost a lowest common denominator with all of these children. And I really wanted to understand what that was because I thought it would help me understand more about how to help them, how to um, identify ways that the obstacles these children face because of their symptoms can be reduced. And in thinking about it, I developed this model. And the way I think of it is that the brain, for our purposes, essentially has two functions, two functional regions. And I'm talking function here, not geography, not anatomy, okay? Um, It doesn't correlate to left and right hemisphere or anything like that. It's not about the um, prefrontal cortex per se, We're just talking about function. One function of the brain is to keep track of what it knows. Things like, what are you supposed to do when you're in a given situation? What's your moral code? What's your value system tell you? What is your list of goals? What are your intentions both in sort of the big picture in terms of what you want to be when you grow up and what kind of person you want to be when you grow up. And in the short term, what do you want to get done this afternoon? Or what do you want to accomplish during center time in the next 10 minutes? All of these intentions and goals are kept in what I call the no side of the brain. Okay. Then there's another function of the brain. And this is what I call the go function, the go side. And the go part of the brain is in charge of directing a person's behavior at what we call the point of performance. In the heat of the moment, right now, what's actually happening? What are you actually going to do or not do? Which is different from, or maybe different from, sort of the big picture intentions that you have for a given time frame. 
And what I noticed is that while these children may have the very, very, very best of intentions and may be able to tell you 15 different acceptable behaviors, responses to little Joey stealing their pencil, when they're in the heat of the moment, what they do is different. What they do when it comes to go time is different from what they know is expected of them and what they know they're sort of supposed to do and what they would like to be able to do. So I started thinking about why it is that children with ADHD seem to have a discrepancy between their no and their go, much more so than children without ADHD. And I started doing some reading and some research. And it turns out that in my mind, really that's the common thread. It's a lack of self-control over in the inattentive presentation of ADHD over where your brain goes. Even when you're trying to pay attention to what the teacher is saying, for example, if your brain wanders off to some other place that's more fun than center time, you don't have the self-control to bring it back to center time and make it focus on the teacher. Likewise, in the hyperactive or impulsive presentation, like I said, if little Joey knows 15 appropriate responses for what to do when Sally steals his pencil, but in the heat of the moment, he does something else that he knows perfectly well he's not supposed to do and wishes he hadn't done and wishes he could control himself um, in order to not do, regardless of what he knows, in the heat of the moment, he does something else. And in my mind, that's what all these kids have in common is that discrepancy between what they know and how they go. So how is that different from kids who don't have ADHD? Interesting. In my mind, the kids without ADHD have essentially a seamless connection between the no side and the go side of their brain. And it turns out that there are neurons whose job it is to convey information. There are brain cells whose job it is to convey information from the no side to the go side and vice versa. And that way, what these children know can impact what they do in the heat of the moment. They can actually move information and use information from their no side when it's time to go. And when they get off track in their go, they can refer back to their sort of mental list of what they know to review that information and then, again, use it to impact what they do. So it's very accessible to them. Exactly, exactly. Even in the, in the moment of behavior. Exactly. Or more often in the moment of behavior. Right. And, of course, there are developmental um, targets for what's appropriate for a given age, mm-hmm. um, right? But, but by definition... I think what we see in ADHD is that these kids are developmentally behind their peers in terms of how well they can access what they know and use it to drive their go. And it turns out that there are pediatric neurology studies that show that the 
nerve cells that we just talked about that connect the no and the go in children with ADHD are actually not fully awake. They are in a state of being most of the time that is sort of quasi asleep. And that explains to me why it is that information can't flow freely and efficiently between the no and the go, because the nerves that are supposed to carry that information are sort of asleep and not on the ball, not doing their job adequately, often. So what else have we learned and that you could say a little bit about in terms of why that's happening in the brain? I think that right now we're in an area of just enormous growth and understanding um, through imaging, imaging techniques, all kinds of technology is really making us more able to learn about how different parts of the brain are connected. And I think where previously the theory was that the prefrontal cortex, the part of the brain in the very front behind the forehead was sort of not um, developing correctly. I think what we're now beginning to understand is that actually it's the way the different regions of the brain connect and communicate with each other and influence each other. And it's this whole network of, of communication um, signals that move all around the brain, that it's that connectivity that is impacted in people with ADHD, not so much that a certain part of their brain is not functioning well. Um, and I think that we're going to learn a lot more about that in the decades to come. Um, and I don't have a lot of um, neuroimaging data to support my, my thesis, but functionally, this is how I think of what happens in the brain, that somehow what the kids know doesn't translate into what they do in the moment. And as a treating clinician, I would agree with you from my review of the research, as well as talking to colleagues, that it is um, a great time in our field because we're learning more. However, we have so much more to learn. So it is hard to, to answer those questions specifically. But I'm also hopeful, too, that in the, as we go along, we're going to get more and more answers to that, which will just help us better better help children, not only with ADHD, but other challenges, as well as adults. Absolutely. So getting back to your no-go model, how does this um, help us in terms of uh, with an ADHD child? Sure. So this is where it matters, as far as I'm concerned. Um, I can theorize all day about what they know and what they actually do, but how do we use this information to help these kids and to understand these kids and to empathize with these kids? The first two things that this model seems to highlight for me is one, there is not, having ADHD is not a reflection of a moral failing. It's not a character flaw. It's not a poor underdeveloped value system. The value system can be extremely sophisticated, fully intact, but inaccessible. The second thing is that the behaviors that are demonstrated by these kids are not necessarily a reflection of knowledge deficit. It may, people often treat these kids as if they didn't know that they're not supposed to do the impulsive things that they do. And so we tell them over and over and over again, don't do that. 
You're not supposed to do that. And we tell them over and over again, the five alternative things that we wish they would do as if they didn't know better. When, if you look at the way this model is set up, it makes it clear that that doesn't address the problem. We can beef up that no side until we're blue in the face. Until we help the children access that information in the heat of the moment, we don't change their behavior at all. So it's not a moral failing. It's not a character flaw. And it's not necessarily a result of knowledge deficit. So this is all really potentially empowering for the many parents and teachers out there, as well as other clinicians who work with children with ADHD, to really to help us frame our approach and how we're thinking about a child, how we feel about them, judgments we may be making about them. Exactly, exactly. And, and, and here's the thing, you know, the world can only see a person's behavior. They can't see a person's intentions. They can't see a person's knowledge base. They can't see a person's moral code, their value system, their goals. They can only see the behavior. Okay. If we assume that most of the world doesn't have ADHD and most of the world performs and behaves in ways that reflect their moral code, their fund of knowledge, their goals, their intentions, then we can assume that most of the time, if we look at behavior, we can make judgments about what's happening on the no side, about these other character um, components of a given child. And I think that's what the world does, even with children with ADHD. They look at the behavior and make assumptions about the person's character makeup. Most of the time when they do that to any given child, they are probably right, but they're not necessarily right when they do that with ADHD. Okay. So they're making inaccurate and probably um, unfavorable judgments about a person's moral code based on their behavior. But then it gets worse. Mm. Because the thing is, the way children develop their self-concepts, the way they learn about who they are and about how the world is going to receive them is by looking in the mirror that the world holds up to them when they're young. And if we're holding inaccurate and judgmental and negative mirrors up to these children and telling them, you have an underdeveloped moral code, you're insensitive, you're lazy, you're not very smart. Clearly, even though I've told you 500 times what you're supposed to do in a given situation, I need to tell you many, many more. So you must not be very smart. You haven't absorbed the information, right? We give them these negative messages over and over and over and the children absorb them. And I think that that sets off, can potentially set off this person, the individual's life into a trajectory that can be dangerous and unhealthy. When if the world went a little more slowly in passing judgment on these children and thought a little bit about the disconnect between their character development and their behavior and changed the mirror that they held up we could really change the trajectory of that child's life course. Okay. And in addition to that, if we can help children behave in ways that do reflect their moral codes, the world doesn't have to do any work. 
right? The world can just reflect what they see. And it's a positive, more accurate reflection, again, making a positive trajectory for that child's life course. So I think that there are two ways that understanding this disconnect can be very helpful. If we can leverage what we know to help the children fix that disconnect, then their behavior does accurately reflect what they know. And if we can help the world understand that the behavior is not necessarily reflective of who these children really are, then we can change how they reflect back on these children. And just to say a little bit more about that, because I think that there um, there are situations where parents may feel like they're kind of stuck with um, how they're perceiving their child. So can you say, talk about that a little bit from two perspectives? One would be from the parent's perspective and what that might feel like, like what are the things they're thinking or saying to themselves or even saying to others or their child? And then the other would be, what does that feel like or th- what is the thinking like or experience like for a child who's on the other end of that? As it happens, I've been in both situations <laughs> uh, for many years, so I can talk about both of those. From a parent's perspective, raising a child with ADHD can be extraordinarily frustrating. There's no question about that. Um, what we find is that the parenting techniques that seem to work for all of our friends and neighbors and family members just don't seem to get the same results for us and for our children. And that's extremely frustrating. The usual sort of bag of tricks that that we carry around seems useless. And we're left not having any recourse. Um, and it's very, very frustrating. We feel helpless a lot of the time to make things happen the way we want them to happen. And sometimes the way we know the children want them to happen. So, so I'm not... Um, standing in judgment of frustrated parents, believe me. Um, but I am hoping that if we use this model, we can under, come to a better understanding that will help relieve some of that frustration and also learn to leverage strengths in a way that will make performance improve so that parents will be less frustrated. From the child's perspective, I think that if the kids are lucky, they have a sense of an inconsistency between kind of who they feel like they are and how um, developed their sort of inner selves are and the messages that the world sometimes sends them. I think if we're lucky, they feel like, you know, I didn't mean to be a bad kid, but the world seems to be telling me I'm a bad kid. Um, If, if we can intervene when there is still that conflict, I think we've done the child a great service. I think when we're really in danger is when the child has fully absorbed the negative messages and has incorporated them into his own self-concept or her own self-concept, then then we've got a bigger problem to deal with. And what does that look like a little bit? Because I think it's important for everyone listening to know that sometimes when um, people seek help, that um, things have been going on for a while. So we're seeing uh, behaviors and our thought patterns that are additionally troubling. 
And so what is so what are some of the other things that can happen if some of the, that internal negative message is there? Right. Well, I think it's sort of a snowball effect oftentimes. Um, children with ADHD have been shown to generally be less successful academically in school. They can be often less successful socially with their peers and with adults. They can just have a harder time um, succeeding in many aspects of life. And if you combine that with a world telling them that they are doomed to failure, I think you can end up with a an individual with very low self-esteem, with very little sense of self-control, and with very little hope for the future. Um, and that's what we want to avoid, especially when, if we look at things differently and if we turn them around, there is a potential for this to go in a whole other direction. Yeah, and I think that we also, um, you know, kids can come in and they can be depressed. Um, they Also, kids can have anxiety um, absolutely. Well, absolutely. So. so ADHD is rarely seen alone. It's almost always seen in conjunction with some other um, sort of diagnosis, some other complicating factor, such as, like you mentioned, depression, anxiety. There can be other things as well. And I think it can be really hard to piece out what is cause and what's effect and what's sort of um, biological in nature and what is experientially um, learned and, and developed over time as a result of human interactions, I think it can get really complicated quite quickly. Yeah. So sometimes when we're starting off and trying to help um, a child and family that may be experiencing ADHD, um, we do we do want to take that perspective that things are complicated and, um, and that we have uh, potentially frustrated parents as well as a frustrated child. So that, um, and sometimes it's important to say that to the, to the parents, I think. Yeah, um, absolutely. Absolutely. These, this is, um, a very frustrating position to be in. Um, and it takes hard work to, to incorporate this model and to turn things around. I think it can be done, but I don't think it's easy. Um, and I think to the extent that we can support parents to make these changes, we, I think it's can be enormously life-changing for the individual child and for the family. Um, but it's it's not an easy task, right? So, and I think um, so, so. To return to your model, because I do think it's empowering, and I think that's where it's actually if um, there's an opportunity for for parents and teachers to start to understand ADHD uh, in this manner. Uh, I think it really starts to jumpstart that process if we're starting at the beginning with this. So, tell tell us a little bit more about kind of then how how. Uh, you use the no-go model to help parents and other professionals. Sure, sure. When I was developing the model, it occurred to me that sometimes children with ADHD can function beautifully, fully incorporating their goals, their intentions, their lists, all of their shoulds, and stay with a project from beginning to end, without distractibility, with great focus and great attention, and come up with a completed project, pro- product. 
And I hear this from parents all the time. You know, my child doesn't have ADHD when he's playing with his Legos or when she is drawing pretty pictures, she can do it for hours without needing a break, without getting distracted, without losing focus. So clearly she or he must not have ADHD or ADD. And so I thought, well, gee, you know, I hear that about all of these kids. So what is that? Mm -hmm. If I think to myself, well, there's this lack of connection and they can't use what they know to drive how they go. And then I think about what they do when they're drawing or playing with their Legos. Now there's an inconsistency here in my theory. There's a hole in my theory. So I thought more about it. And here's the thing. I've realized that under certain circumstances, those neural connections wake up and work just fine. They work beautifully. What are those conditions? What are those circumstances? Well, when the kids are excited, when they're doing something that they love to do, when they're having a whole bunch of fun, when they're passionate about something, sometimes it's when they're scared. Parents figure this one out in a big hurry. As parents, we realize that when we ask our children nicely to do something that they don't want to do, we don't get anywhere sometimes. And we don't get anywhere and don't get anywhere until we start screaming and threatening. And then suddenly we have results, right? When we make the kid scared enough that he's going to lose privileges for the next month, all of a sudden things start happening. Okay, fear can absolutely wake up those connections and make things happen. Um, urgency. What matters to the child? What matters to the grown-up might not wake those neurons up at all, but what matters to the child might wake those connections up and make things happen. So there are circumstances under which these kids can perform incredibly well. And that's something that we need as parent, as adults, in the lives of these children, we need to learn to use. And we need to learn to use something other than the fear <laughs> motivator to make these kids wake up and get functional. We need to excite them. We need to speak to their passions. So just um, so another uh, lens I love to use, and you can let me know whether you like it too, is this idea of uh, the difference between a preferred activity and a non-preferred activity and how that relates to a child feeling motivated for that child to be motivated for that particular activity. Right, right. Um, certainly, we see this discrepancy between how the children perform when they're doing what we call preferred activities. Like you said, the things that they prefer to do, performance tends to be excellent, um, certainly adequate for um, activities that the children don't particularly like to do. It's really hard to get even adequate performance out of them at times. Um, and those are the non-preferred activities. And I do think that when kids are asked to perform non-preferred activities, the those brain cells that we talked about that connect the no and the go, go into their sort of default sleepy mode and don't convey information efficiently. On the other hand, when the kids are excited and doing something they love to do and that they're passionate about and that is a preferred activity, there is enough stimulation in the brain to wake those nerves up and leads to efficient and accurate 
connectivity between the different parts of the brain. You know, and I think I've um, thought about this uh, this quandary between uh, when when parents will come in, or we see this um, in the clinic, or we see this in the classroom, that when children want to do something, they're able to do it, but if they don't want to do it, and it, it and I talk a little bit about a switch, and I feel like you you have perhaps kind of come up with that switch in a way, in, in terms of its stimulation. So say a little bit more about, is that, would you Sure, in, in my mind, I think um, it, there tends not to be a lot of sort of, a lot of um, middle ground for these kids. Those connections seem to be either on or off. Mm-hmm. And when they're off, there's nothing you can do, it seems, to get them to do the things they don't want to do. When they're on and the kid has his heart set and his mind set on doing something, there's nothing in the world that you can do to stop them right? It's on or it's off. And if we know that about these kids and we take that as a given and we work within those parameters, then our task as adults trying to get these children to perform non-preferred activities is to find ways to make them fun. We have to turn on that switch if we want to get to the end of a project or to get an end product out of um, a given activity. We've got to turn that switch on. And that's what the model says to me. So what are some of, some of those ways to turn on that switch? Ah, that's the secret. Um, and it's again, it's different for every kid. The first thing I would say, if you're a parent struggling with this, is ask your child. Find out from your child what they love to do. Think about what really turns them on, what really gets them going, and figure out ways to use that. Okay. So for a lot of kids, we talked about, um, you know, excitement and passion, competition or a challenge can really work for some of these kids. Okay. When, um, somebody really needs help a lot, a lot of times these kids can step up when they feel needed. That can be a trigger to sort of turn on that switch. So while it's different from child to child to child, in general, you're looking for ways to make the mundane things fun. Okay, so you're looking at scavenger hunts to help them clean their rooms. You're looking at um, races to beat the clock to get to the car before the buzzer goes off or something like that. You're looking for ways to just kind of spice it up and make things exciting and make them feel awake and alive and engaged. And if we can do that, I think 90% of our problems are sort of um, solved. And how, just uh, thinking about parents at home and or teachers in the classroom, so um, can you give some additional strategies, like kind of how to implement that? Sure. And I know it depends on the particular child, but maybe give some general guidelines. Sure, sure. So if we find that um, in the classroom – Circle time, for example, isn't working for a certain child because he really or she really, really wants to move. We need to sort of accept that given and say, okay, this child's brain is going to be more active, more involved, more engaged if he's able to move. So what we can do is set up a little balance board on the periphery of circle time, of the circle that the children are in, and allow the child to move in a way that is rhythmic non-distracting to other children, non-distracting to himself that allows him to now engage 
in the process of what's happening in circle time. If he's so busy trying to follow the rules and hold still, and he's spending all of his energy fighting the urge to squirm and wiggle and move, you're not getting engagement. So, okay, if movement is what helps this kid, let him move. But let's figure out a way to do it in a way that works for everybody. And a balance board can be a nice example for that's, something that's like that. That's not disruptive. So it works in a way that's not disruptive. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, but gives that child the stimulation that he needs so that he can focus and right. pay attention right. better. Right. Exactly. Um, and the examples are, are endless. Like I said, you can come up with scavenger hunts. You can um, come up with... So one of the things that I like to do for cleaning, um, cleaning up is, okay, everybody... Or for a given child... First thing I want you to do is see how quickly you can find all of the triangular-shaped objects on the floor and put them away. It's a challenge. Can you ignore all of the circles and squares and just pick up the things that are shaped like triangles? Oh, okay. Now, what shape should we go to next? What do you think? Ask the child. Get him engaged in the process. Do you want circles? Do you want squares? Do you want rectangles? Do you want irregular shapes? What shapes should we go for next? And that's the challenge. Um, rather than just saying, I told you to clean up. Mm. It's a supportive sort of from from underneath approach of cooperation and support rather than a top-down approach of authority and punishment. And, and it sounds really, the, the adult in the circumstance has really integrated that idea that to get the child to to do the things that need to happen is that we are going to turn that switch on, that we are going to stimulate that brain as much as we can. Yeah, and that that's going to be a cooperative process. It's going to, we're going to have to know the child, know what turns her or his switch on, and work at doing what we need to do to turn that switch on. And it doesn't come as naturally to many of us as the sort of authoritative, because I said so, approach. But I think it can be much more effective both in the short term in terms of getting done the things that we all need to get done that we don't particularly like doing, right? Helping the child clean his room or clean up the toys or whatever it is, but also in the long term, like we talked about, affecting the child's self-concept, self-esteem, and hope for the future. Yeah, so say a little bit more about that. Is how would an adult in a child's life who, who has ADHD, how would they go about this cooperative process or getting to know those things that are going to help that child um, um, turn on their brain a little bit better? Right. I think one of the neat things about a lot of these kids is that if you do nothing, they'll show you what they like to do, right? In, in a default situation, they're going to do what they love to do. And so a lot of it's just observation, just watching what they do when there are no constraints put on them and then figure out a way to use that information. What you know about the child, that this is what sort of works for him. This is when he's happy. This is what she does that makes her feel um, like her brain is working and that things are, are good. Look at what makes these children comfortable and use that information Okay, so for some kids, again, it's going to be lots of movement and stimulation and racing and competitions and and lots of go, 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 go. For some kids, it's going to be a matter of decreasing the distractions, making a quiet space where they can really focus. It's working with what works for them 
And one of the best, I'd say two of the best ways to find that out are to observe the child and to ask the child. And to the extent that they can demonstrate or explain to you what works for them, there are your answers. And what are some of those questions to ask? How would, how would they be framed? So, again, let's take a task um, like clean your room or make your bed or do your homework. Let's take do your homework. Maybe when the child gets home from school and it's time to do homework, we ask them, huh, would you like to do your homework under your bed or on top of the dining room table today? If there's somebody who likes to do things a little bit um, non-traditionally, maybe we say, what do you think? Would you like to do your homework in a room that's completely quiet or would you like to have a little bit of music? Right. Instead of saying, you must sit down at this desk and not move until your homework is done because I said so and that's how I did my homework. It's engaging. It's cooperative. Um, so if we can make things more playful, then that helps. Um, maybe we make a game of, all right, you're going to spend the next 10 minutes doing your homework under the dining room table. Ready, set, go. When the timer bings, quickly, as fast as you can, you have to get to the, um, on top of your bed. And then you have 10 minutes to do another set of homework problems on top of your bed. And then when the timer bings, we all have to go outside and do 10 more minutes of homework outside if they need a change of venue to keep their brains working. So uh, again, it's sort of a, um, requires the parent or the adult, the teacher, to be creative, to stretch, um, to find new ways to do things that can be uncomfortable and onerous at first. Um, but to my mind, I, if, we, if I had a, a less labor-intensive way to help adults help these children, I would suggest it. I haven't seen anything else that works. So to me, I sort of, you know, if you, if you want better results, this is how I suggest that you, um, that you put your efforts. Um, before we um, end today, I guess I wanted to ask, uh, uh, um, to step back just a little bit, because uh, we heard a lot about how this no-go model can really help the adults in the ADHD child's uh, life kind of change how they interact with that child, change the environment, and optimize both of those uh, to help help a child with some of those non-preferred activities. Just really broadly, what are some of the other areas that we want to think about, or a parent or a teacher, especially a parent would want to cheat, think about in terms of helping that child's brain kind of work as well as possible? Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's important to understand that medications can be enormously helpful, okay? And, and really... In essence, the reason the medications work is because they do provide stimulation, particularly the stimulant medications, do provide stimulation to those brain cells that provide the connectivity between the no and the go. So to the extent that the medications stimulate those brain cells, we don't need to rely so much on making things fun when they're just really not fun. 
Okay, there are some things that are really difficult to make fun, and I understand that. Medications can be an enormous benefit in those circumstances. Um, I think it's also, again, getting back to sort of knowing your child and knowing what works for them, the automaticity is, is sort of another way that we can think about helping these children. Let me explain that just a little bit. Anybody who's ever tried to um, start a new exercise program knows that the hardest thing about starting a new exercise program is getting started, right? Deciding which day is the day you're going to go to the gym and what time and all of these sort of decisions that you have to make to get started with a new exercise program are what are difficult. Once you're in the routine, once it's automatic, once it's a habit, it's easy. Then you just do what you do. And you don't have to think about it. But the thinking about it and the preparing for it and the getting yourself motivated, all of that is really the hard part. Again, we want to use that concept in these kids. If we can't get the connectivity working very well between the no and the go, or if that system is sort of unreliable and, and we're having trouble jumpstarting it, to me, the other alternative is to bypass the need for using the no altogether and go into automatic pilot mode. So for a lot of these kids, you know, you read in, in many textbooks and, and articles, structure and organization really help these children. Well, what does that mean? What it means is when they can get into automatic pilot and just do things that they're supposed to do without thinking about them, you've bypassed the problem. Okay. So if it's 720 every morning is time to brush your teeth and you can just get them in the habit of, Oh, it's 720 time to brush teeth. Oh, 720 time to brush teeth. And they just do it. Then you've bypassed the need for them to think, huh, am I the kind of person who really wants to have clean breath and shiny teeth and, you know, good oral hygiene and then use that information to drive them to brush their teeth. Right. They just, it's 720 end of thought. Um, so I think that's another strategy that can be very, very helpful for these kids. Either integrate the no and the go or bypass the need for that no-go connection. Thanks for sharing that. That's a great uh, topic, and I think we probably could talk more about that. Just uh, wanted to see, uh, Dr. Varblo, if if you would be willing to answer some of our listeners' questions at uh, a future date. Absolutely. Um, it would be my pleasure. As well as to come back and perhaps talk about uh, automaticity a bit more or perhaps some other question, uh, topics like medication. Uh, would you be interested to come back and talk to us some more? It would be my pleasure. I would love to. Thank Great. you. Well, thank you, Dr. Varblow, for coming on the Nurture Podcast today. And thanks again for all the great information. Thank you. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Dr. Karen Varblow. If you'd like to get more information about her, please go to her website, www.drkarenmd.com. Again, that's www.dr K-A-R-I-N.com. If you'd like more information about this episode, including illustrations of the no-go model, please go to nurturepodcast.com backslash episode one. I'm especially interested in your feedback. There's a contact form on my website, or you can email me at mark at nurturepodcast.com. Or you can follow me on Twitter at nurturepodcast. Again, that's at Nurture Podcast. Dr. Varblow has graciously agreed to answer your questions in a future show, so please email me what you'd like to know. 
Also, I'd love to hear from you about other topics you'd like to have discussed, any particular guests you'd like me to have on, or if you're interested in being a guest yourself. I'm interested in having parents come on the show as well as other early childhood professionals. In addition to listening to this show via the website, nurturepodcast.com, you can also subscribe to the podcast via iTunes or through your favorite podcast app on your iOS or Android device. For example, there is a podcast app on Apple devices, which you can find in the App Store, and the Stitcher app on Android devices, among many others. Once on the app, search for Nurture Podcast and then click the subscribe button. Again, thank you for listening. I hope you found it helpful and empowering. May you and the young children in your life continue to thrive and be nurtured.